and welcome back to episode 5 of Eating Words. I'm Sarah Dempster, a registered nutritionist, and I am going to let you into a wee secret. I didn't think this podcast was ever going to happen, so I'm delighted to have made it to five episodes. Today's guest, Dr. Michelle Webster, is someone I originally asked to be one of my first guests over a year ago. Life got in the way and I had to go back to her and eat my words, say, I'm so sorry, I'm not ready to do this. But earlier this year, I thought, do you know what? I'm going to set myself a wee goal of making one episode and I will take it from there. So here we are, five episodes in, and I'm delighted to be able to introduce you to Michelle. Now, if you've listened to the other episodes or if you follow me on social media, you may know I've been working in and around nutrition for over 10 years now. And a couple of years ago, I decided to take a step away from nutrition to study psychology, having become more interested in eating behaviour and body image than nutrition itself. But the more I learn about different areas, the more I realise I don't know and want to learn about the whole range of topics that influence our relationships with food and our bodies. Of those, sociology is an area where I've not done anywhere near as much reading as I would have liked to have. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity this podcast has given me to speak with people from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives. Dr Michelle Webster is a lecturer in sociology at Royal Holloway University of London. Her research sits at the intersection between the sociology of food, childhood and the family, as well as medical sociology. She's also created a module titled Diet, Identity and Body Image, which in part encourages undergraduate students to reflect on the way in which their food consumption practices are related to their social identity. As ever, following this conversation, I'm left contemplating what I could do differently or better in my role as both a nutritional professional and as a parent. One last wee thing before I get started, I had a bit of a nightmare trying to record on Zoom for this episode and I had to go to plan B and record straight into my phone. There are a few minor glitches in the recording, but I do hope it won't spoil your listening experience. I'm very much a one-woman band here, but I promise to keep improving on the technical side of things. So, here we go. Hi Michelle and welcome to Eating Words. Hi Sarah, thanks so much for having me. So I like to start each episode by asking guests a personal question about food and what I wanted to ask you is do you have a signature dish so something you either enjoy cooking or something that you just love to eat? Good question. <laughs> uh, yeah, really good question. I guess I'm one of the, what my interest in food comes from the fact that I'm really fussy about food. So I was really fussy about food as a child. I'm getting better, but still probably one of the most fussy adults you'll eat. My favourite food, um, sadly enough, is toast. I just love toast with anything on it. I guess I like cooking. I like cooking for other people. I don't necessarily eat everything that I cook. Um, my favourite thing that I've made, I'll go for the fav- my favourite thing that I've made during lockdown, if you want. So, um, yeah, my favourite thing that I've made over the last few weeks is uh, brownies with uh-huh. white chocolate chips. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what is it about them that you love? Oh, probably just the fact that they're full of chocolate and sugar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and is, is baking something that you've always done or is that something that it's been like a new kind of hobby that you've taken up around lockdown? Oh, no, I've always enjoyed it. I guess finding time to cook more sometimes it can be a challenge, but I've always loved it as a child. So I always used to cook with my mum which I think is why I associate really nice things with it and she taught me how to cook a lot and sometimes I think when I was little and she had something to make and she needed to do it quickly she'd try and do it while I was out of earshot so I didn't come in and you know 
slow the process down but yeah I've always I've always enjoyed it from when I was young mm-hmm. and you said that you're um quite fussy around food so is that is that something that's been an influence on you deciding to study food yeah I think so so I think when I first started reading about the sociology of food it fascinated me to kind of I think it helped to put my experience into perspective in terms of why me being fussy about food was such a problem because eating and you know eating with other people is such a social thing and like eating with others is how we form relationships and kind Mm. of build bonds with people and um so starting to understand about the different meanings that we attach to food and its social significance helped to kind of explain why, you know, certain occasions for me were maybe quite stressful because I didn't like certain foods. And definitely reading up on like parenting and things now, I feel so sorry for my mum that I was a fussy eater. I'm sure it really like challenged her identity as a mum and what was she doing wrong and why couldn't she get me to eat anything. It probably helped that I had a brother who ate anything and everything. So she knew it wasn't just her, but um probably wondered what went wrong with me. <laughs> and that's the thing, I think like children can be so different and that's there's some of that that's innate, isn't it? But um yeah, it can really change the way that you think about yourself. I think when when your children's behaviour around food isn't the way that you would like it to be, then then that does kind of bring up lots of different things for people, I think. Absolutely. And I think everyone's got advice on it and tells you what you should do or what you shouldn't be doing. And you're probably thinking, you know, I've tried some of that and I've tried that and what, what next kind of thing. And, and I guess sometimes it's presented in a way, particularly from maybe other parents or things like that, of, oh, it's just, you know, it should be this simple. Just put it in front of them and they'll eat it. If you, you know, maybe if you don't give them anything else, then um, they'll have to eat it or whatever it is. Yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge, isn't it, around feeding children and things like that and it can be I think like you've talked about in some of your other episodes and things like so much emotion attached to it particularly for like mm. parents and mums especially um really linked to their identity and kind of when there are problems around feeding children and stuff that that really taps into like how they feel they're they're doing as a mum mm-hmm. yeah it has come up a lot so um and, and that's the thing like I I'm a registered nutritionist with a background in public health and I guess most of my my first couple of guests were all people working in nutrition as well and like you say a lot of points have come up around how the way that we feed children relates to our identity and it is an area that I've been thinking about a lot over the past few years but it is only recently that I've started to kind of read a bit more sociology research and become aware of that actually there is like a whole field of research that's been done around this around food and the role that it plays in family life relationships and how that varies across cultures and social sort of settings um so I did like I think we did one module on sociology in my nutrition degree um but it just it wasn't something that we looked at in detail it was quite a general introduction but not in the context of food specifically and I really think it's really important that within nutrition we work with other disciplines to sort of understand better how people eat and to think about how we can make a difference to people's health and well-being through food. You know, that, that that needs to be done in the context of where people are actually at. But so I thought it would be brilliant to get you onto the podcast because I thought you might be able to tell me a bit more about what kind of role sociology can play in helping us to understand people's relationships with food. Oh, thanks. Yeah, fingers crossed <laughs> I can add something in terms of that. So I guess... <laughs> Um, if anyone isn't familiar with sociology so it's the study of sort of society and the individuals within it and how we influence each other so how everything from 
you know the, the big structures in society like the education system social class all the way through to our sort of more micro level individual interactions with people on a daily basis come to shape sort of who we are and how we understand the world around us and equally how we can have an influence on that so I guess thinking about food one of the main ideas within um, the sociology of food is that we attach meanings to foods and that actually when we're thinking about you know what we're going to eat at any time that a lot of what we're thinking about is those meanings attached to the foods rather than necessarily the nutritional value of the food itself so I think at a very basic level we can think about just like what we construct as food or what we perceive to be food because there are plenty of things that we could eat that you know could have nutritional value that actually the thought of eating those might provoke like a really strong feeling of disgust within us even though those things might be eaten maybe in other parts of the world because we don't see them as foods and so those meanings are hugely important in terms of like what we eat when we eat different foods whether it's different times of year or different times of day and it's kind of like it's all down to our culture and how we come to understand food and I think it's really important for identity because when we consume those foods we also sort of embody some of those meanings that are attached to food so I know one of the things that you've kind of talked about in some of your other episodes as well is some of the problems associated with labeling foods as good foods or bad foods or healthy or unhealthy and kind of those moralistic discourses that surround that that are you know our society is absolutely saturated with them and it's partly related to diet culture when people say oh I've had a really good day today or I've had a really bad week or I've eaten something naughty or you know referring to food as kind of junk foods and things like that they all have those good and bad meanings kind of attached to them and I think the problem with that is that when we eat those foods we kind of feel that way about ourselves so maybe if we eat good foods and we feel good about ourselves that's not such a problem but if when we eat bad foods we then start to feel like we're a bad person or we feel guilty and that has an impact on us in that way that's really problematic because also I think sometimes people have a tendency to judge other people on the same basis um, and this is probably related to particularly to weight and like body size and shape and things as well and there's definitely a privilege that comes along with being slimmer and smaller and being able to eat more of these kind of bad um, foods and not be judged in the same way whereas if you're someone who's bigger and you eat bad foods and people might judge you as you know lazy that you lack self-control that you're greedy and that really has an impact on you know how you view yourself and the way you feel about yourself and your own sense of kind of moral worth and I think if like if we're thinking about how this impacts on children it's not like we get to adulthood and we we suddenly learn these things they're kind of drip fed to us throughout our lives and children are picking up on these ideas and starting to I guess they're starting to understand who they are as they're growing up and so some of these um, all these different meanings that we attach to food and the way in which we talk about food maybe without even realizing it um, or things that children see in the media can really have an impact on the relationship that they then go on to develop with food. Yeah and I suppose the relationship that they then develop with their caregivers as well you know if there's a disconnect between the information that they're getting say from school around food and what's good and what's bad or from um you know even from children's media there's quite a lot of that type of messaging that's drip fed through that um but yeah so so both if what they're being served by their parents isn't in alignment with what they're being told externally that's good that could create some kind of disconnect probably there in the relationship could it yeah I would think so um and I guess it depends where they're um 
I don't want to say like where their loyalties lie, but where they have the strongest connection, if you see what I mean. So if you have like yeah. a really positive relationship with your parents and then you're getting told something else at school, it could form a kind of alienation around like education or those messages and things like that, because, you know, you trust your parents and what they're telling you, as I guess the opposite could also be true in that you might start to you know question particularly if we see food as a way of showing love and things like that like maybe how much do my parents love me or care about me if they're feeding me um these bad things and things like things like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's so much kind of different things wrapped up in that yeah wondering how much parents care also like internalizing that message that if i'm eating a bad food I might be bad um yeah supposing like a child's bringing home information from school on how the family should or shouldn't eat um or what shouldn't shouldn't be in in their lunchbox what what um are some of the kind of different ways that families might respond to that yeah I guess um it's probably maybe regardless of some of like their, their characteristics and stuff I think for some parents that could feel quite patronizing that they're being told kind mm-hmm. of you know how to you know what's healthy and what's not and I think like you've touched upon before like most people know what's healthy food or what's like seen to be healthy and what what isn't so feeling that someone needs to tell you that might be maybe questioning your ability as a parent um and I think also some of these messages kind of assume that everyone has the same resources available whether they're economic resources time resources um all of these different things and it really emphasizes I think the idea that you're being judged as a parent and as your value as a parent how good you are as a parent by the types of food that you're sending to school with your child and I know that um so Vicky Harmon and Benedetta Capolini for instance have done some really interesting research on uh, children's lunch boxes and how mothers display kind of their identity as a mother and communicate who they are as a mother to other people through the food that they send to school with their children so through lunch boxes so I guess it creates a pressure um, on parents so they want to look like that they put some effort into it they want to look like a responsible parent that they're not putting things in there that someone could somehow judge them as being you know irresponsible for including that food whether that's teachers at school for instance whether it's other parents because children will always go home and say so and so had this in their lunch box and things like that um and trying to get that balance between fulfilling those like cultural definitions of what it means to be a good parent alongside making sure that your child's got something that they want to eat that they're going to enjoy when they open their lunchbox and I think sorry I'm, I'm kind of kind of go off at a little bit of a tangent I think one of the other interesting <laughs> things about lunchboxes is the way in which children <laughs> interpret the food in those lunchboxes as well so I guess we we read something about people when we look at what they're eating and that can be that they're really like similar to us or it might be that they're different so if we think about um like culture and ethnicity for instance and how um like food is a huge part of our culture and maybe um, children from different ethnic minority groups might go to school with different foods in their lunchbox and I think it will depend how children react to that in terms of how they then feel about their food and maybe their cultural identity um so certainly from talking to some of my students they've said that you know when they went to school and they had things in their lunchbox that the other children didn't know what they were that it kind of um maybe led to them being bullied sometimes um about those kinds of foods or that you know them not wanting to eat in front of people because they didn't want other people to comment on them and i think similar things can probably be said for children with um different medical conditions so if they can't eat certain things or they have to eat certain things that 
food can kind of join us together it can be a really nice collective thing or it can really mark people out as different yeah yeah just a couple of things there so um the first episode that I did with Kelly Fullerton when I talked to her at the end about what she would like to see change you know if there was some action that she could take um to improve people's relationships with food she's a teacher working in Melbourne I think in Australia and um she said a big multi multicultural meal so getting people together to share the foods from their different cultures to kind of help get people you can bring people together around food and sharing food I think um but yeah having more understanding of the different ways that people eat um and how that could help children to be more understanding of each other and be more inclusive and I thought that was a lovely um way of looking at I agree yeah when I listened to that I thought that was a really nice idea and a really positive kind of idea yeah and then when you said there about the kind of medical issues then um, I remember my son coming back when he was in, he must have been probably four or five years old and he had so many questions about why one of his um, friends at nursery couldn't have gluten. So, you know, they would always be having their snacks at nursery and sometimes there'd be birthday cake brought in and he found it fascinating that that some people can't have gluten. So again, that there's that the medical reason that differentiates the way that people can eat and how that is interpreted but interpreted by children is really interesting. But it's just reminded me of of his question. One time he just looked up at me and he said, Mummy, does gluten stick the world oh. together? <laughs> Because I've been trying to explain what it was and, and how it was in some bread and cakes, but not all of them. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That's really sweet. I love the questions <laughs> that children ask about food because it's only when they ask questions that you start to understand what their understanding is, like how they're interpreting things. Yeah, yeah. And and like Kelly and I discussed at length in that episode, it's not usually the nutritional aspects of food is not something that they're really thinking about. But you know what food means to them and their families and their family traditions their culture and familiarity all of those things are so important to children um in the food that they're having both at home and when they're out in the wider world I think absolutely that's Um, just made me think so I was talking to um I was talking to some of my students about the way in which we can view some foods as like masculine foods or feminine foods and things like this and where we start to learn those ideas and um, I think Mm. you've kind of highlighted like one of the ways in which we learn about food is you know through meeting other people who eat different foods and then like learning about that but one of the things that they said when I asked them about sort of masculine and feminine foods so they talked about I don't know if you remember like the Yorkie it's not for girls advert yes so I think that came about in like the early 2000s and then it was around I think it was 2000 12 that they actually stopped having you know the the symbol of like the female with the cross through it as the o for yorkie and so i guess <laughs> at their age they were at an age where they I had two people in two different classes bring this up. So one of them said that she thought if she went into a shop and tried to buy a Yorkie bar, they wouldn't let her buy it, that it wasn't for girls. It was like off limits, restricted. And I had another one tell me that um, when she saw that advert, she thought that Yorkie bars would make people, uh, would make girls ill. That, um, yeah, that they actually, it was kind of like a warning that you shouldn't eat this because it would make you ill. And I think so when sort of adverts and things are almost like poking fun at our culture a bit that we don't necessarily think about how children might be absorbing those kind of messages like they'd obviously taken it really literally Mm. which was yeah for me like absolutely fascinating to think about like when children start to understand some of those gendered ideas because they do they kind of carry on through to adulthood so if we think that say um meat and red meat for instance is constructed as something that's um, like a particularly masculine food so throughout history it's been associated with 
um, virility and strength and I guess the ability to dominate like another species or whatever it is and even I guess like men being the ones to do the barbecue or you know being the man to carve the meat or whatever it is that although some of those traditions might be fading away a bit more now we still see these things having a real impact so for instance um, if we look at the number of men and women who were vegan in the UK there are twice as many women as men and that's because I guess not eating meat doesn't challenge uh, a feminine identity in the same way that it can challenge some traditionally like masculine identities and children I guess are absorbing these ideas like all the time yeah about how yeah what types of food are associated with gender it's uh-huh. the same with it's... like say with young girls and diet culture and things like that and um, feminine foods as well like how many adverts do we see for yogurt that are a man eating yogurt rather than a woman eating yogurt and things <laughs> like this and I think yeah that um, young girls in particular would probably have a much more healthy relationship with food and their body if they weren't surrounded by these messages as they were growing up yeah because we know there's research saying that that children from as young as five I think it is girls from as young as five restrict food with the intention of of managing their weight so those messages are filtering through uh, at very young age from I guess some of the things that they're seeing in children's media but also messages that they're maybe hearing around them from from family members or from you know, people who are are strong influences on them. So um, it is so important how we talk about food around children. Yeah, definitely. Um, They're like little sponges, aren't they? They just absorb it all up without us necessarily realising. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I was just laughing though because I was thinking about my children and it's hard. And this is the thing, as as a parent, you have a lot of insights and knowledge from your own children and the children that are around you you kind of get to see them they're like a little you know you're doing kind of that live research as you're going along and seeing how children respond to things um but also almost every time that I'm talking to any anybody about food and children I automatically think about what my children do um and it's sometimes hard to kind of not do that (laughs) um and be completely um unbiased and impartial but yeah my my little girl is four and she loves meat she would just eat meat um all day whereas my son is six and he's almost vegetarian like he just I don't serve him different food but I have it happens that I'm vegetarian and my husband isn't so they're seeing kind of a variety of food and they're, they're getting to choose what what they like to eat from what's served so he loves things like beans and um she's just like yeah quite happy sitting eating yeah eating yeah <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about when I was growing up and I always thought that tea was like a woman's drink and coffee was a man's drink my dad hated tea and obviously at some point you know as we grow up those ideas start to get challenged but it must have been that it must have been embedded somewhere for me to kind of remember that but um yeah I guess it, I guess it depends at what age you mm-hmm. learn them and at what point you then start to hear some of those kind of challenges to those ideas and whatever else and I think some of these different ideas come together as well so one of the things that I ask my students to do is write reflective essays about their eating and how it relates or their food consumption and how it relates to one aspect of their identity and um, I've read a couple of interesting ones about intersectionality between ethnicity and gender and how um from a gender perspective sort of females would eat less meat but because um the two girls that i'm thinking of are from like pakistani culture um where they eat a lot of meat their their sort of um, ethnic identity was kind of the overriding factor 
rather than their gendered identity in that instance but then equally they also talked about kind of the pressure to maintain like a certain body image and things like that which related to more of like a, a western um, cultural ideal that also impacted their food so I think it's interesting how these um, different aspects of our identity come together to influence our our food consumption yeah and where there is any kind of conflict in those two different intersecting identities relationships to food and and, and what decisions people make Absolutely. around that yeah. yeah it will be interesting to see how uh, my little girl develops over time and and if there comes a point where she's thinking differently about food I feel like I've kind of worked quite hard to try and ensure that they have a positive relationship with food but I'm conscious that actually that's probably something that could be pressured in and of itself you know um, I spoke in my last episode with Laura Thomas about um, the pressure that parents can feel to raise perfect eaters but I guess there's just both culturally and um, and that can be internalized we do put a, a lot of pressure on ourselves to to be good parents and even to protect children from diet culture um you know that's a, something that we can think that we need to do it's something that we are able to achieve exactly. as, as I parents. imagine that gets much older is um, uh, much yeah. harder sorry as children get older as well so I guess you can kind mm. of protect them when they're little from kind of what they're hearing a bit more or what they're seeing in the media but as they get older and you know they have more control over those things they're on social media you know they're talking to other people at school or whatever it is suddenly some of these influences start to um kind of creep in a bit more and I think that is like that is a real pressure for parents and I think it probably relates to um like parenting culture at the moment in comparison to how maybe how we would have understood parenting culture in the past so one of the things that's talked about within sociology and it comes from sort of Sharon Hayes work is around um, the idea of intensive parenting, which is a particularly kind of middle class form of parenting and particularly like mothering, which is the idea that I guess parents don't necessarily feel that being a good parent is something that comes naturally anymore. It's kind of a skill set that has to be developed and parenting culture is really expert driven. And like, if we think about food in particular from you know, medical experts, nutritionists, celebrity chefs, like there's so many people telling parents different things about the right way to um, feed their children and kind of parents are getting pulled in different directions. And absolutely, as you said, like talking to um, Laura Thomas um, on your last episode about how I guess the, the pressure on parents and, the, and sometimes the competition between parents as well, that parents take mm. that quite personally and feel that, you know, if something isn't quite going right, then it's somehow... Um, their fault so I think this is what um, uh, Ellie Lee and Charlotte Faircloth from Kent and their colleagues in their book um, Parenting Culture Studies have written about in terms of uh, parental determinism the idea that everything parents do is going to have like a big impact on shaping who their children are whereas I guess in the past yeah that pressure wasn't there in the same way the idea was that children would develop into adults and maybe didn't need all this intensive um, shaping and molding as children to make sure that they developed in the right way. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because I'm hearing you saying that and I know that I have I've fed into that I've, I've done it myself you know and I, I think I even said about it with Laura that we can kind of start to see children as a bit of a project you know and that, that, that there's if we put the right ingredients in or if we do the right things we will be able to protect them from all of these external influences and we will be able to program them into the kind of human being that we we hope that they'll be um, and you talked about nutritionists and I think yeah it's it's difficult because 
there is so much around it's advice to how to eat to how to meet their nutritional needs but also some of the other stuff that I do of of like showing my kids doing cooking activities and suggesting ways that that parents might be able to buffer their children against the impact of diet culture you know it is all kind of the same I guess thing, it all feeds it? into the same idea and I but I think it's important to kind of recognize that it comes from generally normally most of the time it comes from a good place and quite wanting to help and help other parents and Mm -hmm. um, things like that and I guess as much as we can be aware of culture and society that surrounds us we're still part of that so I can be you know quite critical of you know the discourses that surround food and eating and things like that but I'm absolutely aware that they impact on me in the same way and I'm not entirely sure if it's a double-edged sword to then be aware of that and feel that you're then somehow contributing to it Um, (laughs) If ignorance might be bliss I don't know <laughs> yeah uh-huh. yeah so so but yeah this idea of intensive parenting and there's intensive grandparenting as well is that no no I, yeah so that's something that with um again with um, Vicky Harmon and Benedetta Capellini one of the things that we were interested in um we've just done some research on grandparenting so it's not quite published yet but it's under review at the minute and so I guess with grandparenting doing like so much kind of informal care trying to help parents out and things like that we were interested in whether this intensive parenting culture had any impact on grandparenting and the way in which they look after um, children when they're in their care and so one of the things that we found is intensive parenting culture now obviously didn't exist when these grandparents were parents themselves so in some ways they're, they're different parenting cultures that they were a part of when they were parents or our parents are sometimes in conflict so whereas parents now are quite focused on the actual foods that children are eating and trying to maintain kind of like well-being for children around food, not pressuring them to eat things that they don't want to eat, kind of taking children's like own thoughts and feelings on that into perspective. That wasn't necessarily the way grandparents would have brought up children. So sometimes they were quite critical of um, parents and maybe felt that children should be told to, you know, eat what they were given and that there was nothing else because that was the way um, that they were brought up and actually what was more important for them sometimes. And this was probably more like the the older grandparents was um, around kind of the etiquette around eating. So making sure children sat at the table that they knew, you know, how to use um, a knife and fork and that, um, you know, they didn't leave until they'd finished and respecting the person who had given them food and um, things like that so almost some tension between those different styles and I guess um, for some for some par- uh, grandparents particularly when children were little maybe feeling that some of their autonomy had kind of gone around uh, being able to care for their grandchildren because parents were I guess quite um, prescriptive in what they wanted the child to eat and when they wanted them to eat and um, things mm. like that and um there's one grandmother who sticks out to me who I interviewed who managed to find a loophole in the rules, which was basically she was told, you know, <laughs> that her grandson wasn't allowed um, certain foods. But there had recently been what her husband termed a change in policy, which meant that if he asked for something, he was allowed to eat it. So she said, so if I make myself, um, I think it was a piece of current toast and he asks for that then he can have it but I can't make it for him so it was kind of her way of sticking within the rules but if he hadn't eaten his lunch or whatever it was um, that he was meant to have eaten then it was a way she could 
give him what she wanted to give him but still uh play within the rules i guess and so sometimes i guess mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. <laughs> uh an intensification of grandparenting to an extent in the some of the kind of intensive parenting culture was then being carried out by grandparents or they were somehow kind of assisting in that in a way because they had to follow the rules um but then also i guess grandparents don't always necessarily do what they're told or they have slightly different interpretations of the rules and um so one of the things that we spoke to them about was, you know, what does it mean to be a grandparent? And um, they talked about, you know, uh, being there, wanting to be supportive, but not interfering, which shaped, I guess, what they felt they could do around food. But equally, mm-hmm. I guess one of the important things about being a grandparent is um, that you have that almost like that right to treat children, to spoil them, to indulge them and things like that. And um, one of the ways in which grandparents obviously do that is through food and sweet foods and treat foods. Um, and so I guess they said one of the main complaints that they got from parents was sometimes too many kind of sweet foods. Um, and I guess grandparents weren't giving these foods to to be obstructive in any way. That wasn't their intention. I guess the point of giving these foods is to um, build relationships with their grandchildren. They wanted to show them that they loved them with these foods. And this was their way of doing that. They wanted to build those bonds. They wanted them to remember them um, in a positive way. And I guess one of the problems is that if, if that's, you know, not very regular, that's one thing. I guess if it if grandparents are looking after children more often then sometimes parents can find that maybe problematic and I think also um, for some of the parents maybe undermined what a treat was and their ability to then treat children in the same way so um, I guess if something's given too often it's no longer a treat it's no longer novel or exciting so um, it kind of removes that special quality from that food and then limits the options that maybe are available to parents yeah yeah I've heard that kind of a lot around but not just about grandparents I suppose about um nursery and childcare settings as well that um where parents are trying to manage their child's nutrition and other people are giving them the so-called treat foods that that then kind of reduces the number of opportunities that they have to be the one giving the 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 foods um but yeah, it's really interesting there in the way that grandparents express their own kind of identity through food and what a grandparent is and and that idea of food having that meaning of of something that you give people to show your love. And depending on what generation the grandparents are of, then the treat foods were something that maybe was not anywhere near as available as they are to us now. So so yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And I just wonder what the impact is on children um and again I can think of my own dad that (laughs) he sends me pictures when he takes them out my son will have a cake like the size of his head and a gleeful expression on his face and I really don't mind them eating those foods I want them to have all foods on a kind of level playing field but but yeah you're like oh there um you wonder what the kind of interpretation of all of that is for children if it's framed by the grandparent as something that's a special treat and especially if it's framed as something that's going against mommy's exactly, and daddy's yeah. rules or what have you into so, that um yeah the ability yeah. for grandparents to kind of construct their role as something like a non like not as authoritative as 
the parent role. Um, I remember that one of the grandparents uh, talked about how um, they lived in the same house, actually, I think. Um, she lived in the same house as her daughter and her grandson, and that her grandson would sometimes come over and say, uh, mummy won't let me have a biscuit, but I know you'll let me have a biscuit. <laughs> the ability to kind of play them off against one another or see the grandparent as kind of a bit of a soft touch or whatever. And I think grandparents quite like that sometimes, that they are you know they get to be the nice guy i guess they've gone through being a parent and now they they want their chance to yeah get to spoil children a little bit maybe yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and especially if that um the way that they feed has changed since they were a parent as well so you know say for example as a parent they were more strict around food and they did um you know maybe encourage children to eat up their veggies and and limited the amount of sweets that they have um and then as they become a grandparent that all changes so you've got the parent kind of thinking hang on a minute I wasn't allowed to have all of this stuff when I was little so how all of a sudden oh, are they wanting to I'm give sure it to my I've child said to my mum um, hang on why am I not sure allowed that I wouldn't have been allowed that <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I mean all of those things it, it really complicates the whole picture around you know if we're trying to give out messages in in kind of public health nutrition about to support people to eat well it's I know we need to have population level dietary recommendations because they are what as a kind of an average of the population if they were to eat closer to those recommendations then then people would be healthier but it's just that often those those recommendations don't maybe um fit within the actual context of people's lives and um don't consider all of these different factors that can can interplay to influence how absolutely and I guess it's the wider structures that then surround that and influence that Mm. because one of the reasons that grandparents Mm. are kind of giving so much care now is because of you know house prices and both parents having to work and you know all of those kind of things that that surround that which means then they're they're often essentially giving free or cheap childcare so then it somehow probably feels unfair for them that that should because they're doing this that they then shouldn't be able to develop the kind of traditional grandparent grandchild relationship that they might um, envisage um, although they're not yeah not intending to cause any harm to their grandchildren or anything like that but I think maybe expectations and like the structures that surround our lives means that some sometimes these things come into conflict and like you're saying some of the advice maybe doesn't always necessarily marry up with the the lived experience in in the way that we might like it to mm-hmm. yeah um, and also you've done some really interesting research on families who use medical diets so you looked at the, the yeah. ketogenic diets for epilepsy and and th- you've thought around kind of how families adapt when they need to make extensive changes to the way that they feed their child so something that's quite far removed from those standard um, nutrition recommendations and also these a lot of the medical diets and ketogenic is probably the most extreme of all of those that doesn't that neither aligns with what children are being taught in school around the eat well plate nor with probably that family's um traditional way of eating um so yeah I was really interested in the ways that that families adapt to those changes and um yeah absolutely and I think like you were saying that so just if anyone isn't familiar with the ketogenic diet and I'm guessing people might have heard of it more now because it's absolutely booming in terms of kind of weight loss and things like that but um so it was the I guess the original treatment for epilepsy prior to medications being developed so it was developed 
around the early 1920s, almost a century ago now. And it's a particularly high-fat, low-carb diet. So children um, will receive somewhere between 60 and 80% of their calories in the form of fat. And it's used as a treatment for um, children with drug-resistant epilepsy, so particularly severe forms of epilepsy where medications aren't working or only work for a limited um, period of time. So, yeah, I guess the nature of this diet means that... um, the family has to adapt in in quite a big way and I guess with maybe other dietary changes sometimes the whole family might adopt the same diet if it's for like allergy reasons or things like that um, to try and make sure that the child still feels included that they don't feel left out and different or to create a safe space within the home and obviously that isn't possible in terms of um, the ketogenic diet and I think um, Kelly Fullerton kind of Uh, touched on this as well when she she said that one of the problems with constructing like good foods and bad foods is that sometimes children will have to eat different foods and if we've said these are bad foods then you know how do they feel about that and I guess that was um, particularly my interest going into my research was around how parents might feel about feeding their children such a high fat diet like what that would mean for them um, as a parent and I guess Yeah, what I found was a few different things. So within these families and the way in which parents talked about food and particularly the child's food who was on the diet is that it became quite medicalized. So food became something that definitely sat within kind of the medical domain. And this was reflected in like their language and the way they talked about food. So they talk about like points or ratios or units or exchanges um, about, you know, percentages of fat, protein, carbohydrate, that kind of thing. And the way that we don't normally talk about um our meals like when we're when we're deciding what we're going to eat and that's probably um understandable given that it was a you know a medical treatment but I guess some of the parents talked about that as kind of a practical way of implementing this diet to really try and strip away some of the emotions that are normally attached to foods so they didn't feel so much like they were denying children um foods that they'd enjoyed and I think what it really highlighted was that the meanings that we attach to foods um, maybe aren't quite so set as, I don't know, certainly I would have thought they were going into this. So fat came to be seen as something that was like really good and really positive within these families. So they talked about like the magic, the magic diet, the magic ingredient. And like one of the parents was saying, oh, you know, the more fat, the better. And I was thinking, I never thought I'd hear a parent say that about um, feeding their children, which makes sense within that (laughs) context. And I guess shows how, yeah, some of these meanings are socially constructed depending on what's going on around us. But these parents um, also were like really creative in their use of food um, to make sure that uh, the way in which we would use food socially continued to be the case within those families. So although parents sometimes try to strip away some of the emotions attached to food, they were also still able to use food to show their children that they love them and to include them in social situations. So I guess In terms of inclusion, everything from trying to make sure everyone was eating the same food or similar foods. So the the most extreme version of this was one parent who created her child um, pretty much a ketogenic birthday party where all children were eating very similar foods or at least things that looked very similar sometimes parents just called things the same thing so maybe Uh everyone's eating bolognese tonight even if you know there's a ketogenic version of that and then you know everyone else's version or just eating at the same time or making sure sure children didn't eat alone that they were never just sat at the table eating by themselves so it still continued um, to be something social 
and I guess p- parents still found ways of being able to show show their children that they loved them through food. So um, finding foods on the diet that they enjoyed meant the parents could, you know, feel that they were displaying that love to them or trying to find foods that looked looked like more on the plate, I guess. So either using smaller plates or exchanging different foods that like had the appearance of being more so that... Um, because I guess where it's high in fat, the, the portion sizes can look quite small. And that was something that, that parents sometimes struggled with a little bit towards the beginning of not feeling like they were um, feeding their children enough. Um, so, yeah, some of the other norms around food that maybe are really important, um, you know, making sure that children aren't eating the same thing every day or where they're eating or whatever it is became really not very important in these families at all. That It was more about just making sure that they had their medicine, essentially, and that, that um, they were eating all of their food and that they were as happy as possible on, on the diet. So, it's yeah, it's more than medicine, really, isn't it? Because they were still looking at all the different roles that food plays for their children and for their relationship with their child and still managing to adapt to that it sounds like that was quite a lot of of work for them though um something that's not easy to do what kind of support did they have most of the parents who I spoke to so it was mainly mothers who did most of the work if if dads were involved it tended to be that they were more involved around the medication or maybe um using like the computer package to work out different uh, like different recipes um, I think there was they were mainly all two parent families as well which I think is quite important that um, like the amount of work that goes into this diet and it could be that there were lone parents using this diet and maybe didn't have time to take part in my research but certainly um, it did take a lot of time because everything has to be prepared from scratch so um, quite a few of the mums that I spoke to either weren't working or working part-time so I think like the the ability to access mm-hmm. this treatment was very much dependent on resources. Parents talked a lot about, you know, having to really push for this treatment and kind of, yeah, really make their case to medical professionals, which we know is something that middle class parents are probably um, more likely to do. Um, and then, yeah, they did have support from um, nutritionists um, about like different diet ideas. But I guess um, online communities were quite helpful for this as well. And there were two particular charities. So the Daisy Garland and Matthew's Friends who um, were, who support families using this diet. And they had like lots of really uh, creative and helpful ideas. And I guess knowing other other parents and families who are in a similar position or who have been there who can help guide through that process and about um really like the lived experience of that and thinking about some of the challenges that they might come up against and yeah um i think it it does illustrate that it is possible to make quite extensive diet dietary changes um with you know i guess when there's a, a medical reason for it um but yeah just thinking through that how much how much that was for those parents to kind of to kind of get to that point and um it will be similar in, I suppose, children with food allergies or other health conditions that require Absolutely. them to, to guess, eat in a I certain spoke way. I to um, families who had all had and, success yeah. on this diet and had decided to continue. And I'm sure there will be families who had maybe tried it and couldn't couldn't make it work, like the amount of work that went into it and whatever else, that it just it couldn't fit their their life maybe, that it the adaption was like it was yeah too much work or the and in some instances maybe they tried it and it wasn't successful and didn't continue for that reason and I'm quite interested or I would be quite interested in how Mm -hmm. 
how parents feel about that and how that impacts on their identity because I guess for the parents that I spoke to it helped them to construct like the identity of a good parent in that the diet was successful and all this hard work was helping to treat their child's condition as I imagine that it's quite heartbreaking for parents if you've tried really hard and put all your effort and energy into this and then it, it hasn't worked and maybe that after so many medications that you've invested so much hope in this mm. and it just doesn't have the um the, the same success yeah yeah it would be really interesting to look at um yeah what, what that what what it's like for families that aren't able mm. to kind of meet that um almost standard and and also I'm thinking about the role of like community and social interaction with other families that are going through something similar um and I see that a lot with the kind of children with food allergies that there is more and more on social media groups and you know that that families can learn from so-called expert involvement in 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 that but that that they're learning from each other and what works for each other as well so um I guess that that does that have a role in forming an identity as a parent to be able to connect with other people that are similar than you or other people that are going through similar situations yeah, with you definitely. whether it's in real life or whether it's online is hugely mm. beneficial often for people's kind of mental health to have someone there who they can kind of vent to if they've had a bad day or that understands kind of um, what they're going through and I think kind of the internet and online communities facilitate that in um you know that people can talk to each other in other parts of the country or all over the world or whatever it is in a way that wouldn't be wouldn't have been possible without um that technology and certainly you know having someone who maybe keeps you going when you've had a bad day or helps to pick you up again and um things like that and is able to offer supportive advice about how some of the challenges that you're experiencing could be solved or ways around it would definitely i think yeah hugely support parents in that that kind of situation mm-hmm. um so usually I kind of and that's been so fast it's really it's really interesting to chat to you and kind of learn more about your role and more about how um the sociology field kind of studies um parenting and food um so I usually kind of finish up with a question around food and nutrition policy and I'm interested in in your thoughts on what needs to happen at more of a, a policy level to support yeah. people to have positive relationships with food. Definitely. Yeah. That it will be so different I, I guess I've had the benefit of listening to your previous episodes. So I've been able to kind of give it some thought as a I guess my focus is normally kind of on critiquing everything. So this is a challenge <laughs> for me. Um, so I've come up with my wish list <laughs> and um, one of the things that I think is hugely important is just greater investment in welfare to reduce food insecurity. So I guess one of the things that happens every year during like school holidays and things like that would be parents with less financial resources really struggling to feed their children and we've seen that with lockdown as well um, and particularly with you know at the beginning when there were more food shortages particularly of everyday staples and things like that I think it's really hard for anyone and children as well to develop positive relationships with food if food is scarce so um, to try and have an environment where all families can have the food that they need I guess would be um, hugely important and related to that I think kind of health campaigns to not construct food consumption as a free choice because not everyone has 
the same choices available to them. And I think Ollie Williams' work, um, you know, his critique of the Change for Life campaign, um, his Equity is the Answer exhibition and things like that really demonstrate this. Because I guess for some families, some of the advice that they're given isn't necessarily practical advice for them. If we think about families who are struggling um, with finances and money and things like that, maybe buying more fresh food is a risk for them because it has the potential to kind of go off and if parents are told you know try this food x number of times with your children and they will learn to like it well there's a one a risk of trying new foods to begin with because if children then don't eat that that's a potentially a wasted resource and so how many times are you going to continue to try that same food if you've only got limited resources um available i guess and yeah so there's something that's been called like the poverty penalty to do with i guess families with sort of in lower socioeconomic groups with less money available to them are more likely to shop locally because they don't have um maybe the money to travel to supermarkets or don't have the transport available which is where there are like the the best deals so they end up paying more for everyday essentials like bread and milk and I guess also even if there are deals where they're shopping to get uh, three for the price of two or buy one get one half price or whatever it is um, it means that you have to have enough money to buy more than you maybe would have done to get the return and so I guess it's the people with less money who aren't able to benefit from those things and I think when we construct food as a completely free choice and we ignore some of these um, like structural constraints um, I think sometimes it has the potential to do more harm than good to the people who we're trying um, to support and the ones who we're trying to target to get more benefit from that and this isn't I don't mean to be like really critical of some of these things and that I realize that it's really hard to capture nuance within a campaign that's meant to be kind of catchy and memorable and things like that but equally not to acknowledge those things could be really detrimental um Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm hoping, well, I've got hopefully in, in a couple of episodes time, I'm speaking with um, a friend of mine who runs a community food project and is trying to kind of get around some of those things. But ultimately, like you said at the start there, that it does come down to money and it comes down to, to equity more generally, um, that if we're not providing people with enough income to actually make the decisions around food that they want to make and to be able to to then buy into some of the campaign messages that, that there are around around nutrition you feel that a lot of the things that you're doing aren't maybe that useful yeah when you can't actually address episode. some of the bigger picture i guess stuff, i had one so. more thing on my wish yeah. list mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> i promise it's my last one um, which Keep was going. just i guess <laughs> regulation around the media I think we absorb a lot of messages through the media and I'm not saying that the media necessarily are the cause of some of the problems that we've talked about but I do think that they replicate messages and help to reinforce some of those things so reducing I think the association between women and dieting would really help young girls in particular to grow up and form more healthy relationships mm. with food and their bodies definitely um removing fat stigma and moralistic discourses around like body weight and food and things like that would help I think everyone around positive like to form more positive relationships and so although I don't necessarily blame the media as such I do think 
more could be done to try and challenge that because if we can challenge the way that we talk about food and stop talking about things in such a like good bad way and remove some of that moralistic discourse then I think that will have a knock-on effect to the way in which we think about food um as well yeah definitely it will be so interesting to see how this whole thing around um the government looking at wanting to do more around addressing weight whether that is done in a a, a sort of sensitive and inclusive way that recognizes the wider determinants of people's eating behaviors and physical activity patterns or whether um like i'm not going to repeat the words <laughs> but some of the headlines that there have been um it's very the wording that gets picked up by the media certainly i think fuels that um increased stigma around weight so yeah it would be great to see that changing but what that looks like yeah, watch this space um, i guess so realistic it is. yeah uh-huh. so okay, where so can people I'm find you if they want to know more about your work so um I'm on Twitter, so Dr. M. Webster um, is my Twitter handle, or if you Google um, Michelle Webster Royal Holloway, my profile page will come up with all my contact details. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I will apologise for my uh, initial um, glitches in the recording and hope that (laughs) this has turned out okay. Thank you so much for listening. If you found the conversation interesting, I would love it if you'd consider subscribing, sharing or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts for me. I'm always happy to hear feedback or suggestions for future episodes or answer any questions that you might have. You can find me at sarahdempster.co.uk, on Instagram at sarahdempsternutrition or on Twitter at sarahdempster. I'll be back again in two weeks with another conversation.